Welcome back. Let's go into prayer as we begin our teaching tonight. Father, you've purposed to work through men. You work through men, Father, to glorify your name. And you work through men, Father, that your Son may have all things put in subjection under his feet. Father, you work through men so that we, Father, may be reconciled to you. Father, I pray tonight as we go into the study that we have prepared, Father, that this time of teaching would continue, Father, as the Holy Spirit guides, that we would continue, Father, to allow you to work through us. For, Father, what we do in our own power has no lasting value, but what we do by your power, Father, is eternal. For without you, Father, we can do nothing. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your word today, Father, we could do much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you all had the blessing of a two-week respite from this teaching and a good business meeting thrown in, as I understand, and we praise God for that. And I trust you're ready, therefore, to pick up where we left off in the series we're doing on the sovereignty of God. Uh, Some of the folks who attend here on Wednesdays during this series are friends of mine who don't generally attend Castle Hills. They come tonight because they know me. And I don't know that all of them got the word about my not being here last week. So I think as it it turned out, maybe a few showed anyway. And uh, I think they were about halfway through the business meeting before they realized it wasn't going to be me uh, teaching. My concern is that they enjoyed the meeting a little more than they were enjoying the other nights. But uh, in the end, I think it was a good visit for them. As I understand, they uh, were added to your membership role. They signed up on a committee. And I think they're bringing the casserole to your next uh, fellowship event. You guys are efficient. I'll give you that. But uh, as I said, tonight is the fifth installment for this series on the sovereignty of God. It's the series I'm calling Thy Will Be Done. If you remember, if you haven't been here or if you have and it's just been too long, I'll remind you the first week we spent about 35 minutes addressing a mistake that I think is common to all of us, a mistake of reducing Jesus to essentially a genie in a bottle, where rather than coming in service to him, we look for him to come in service to us. Common mistake. Second week, we spent time in the book of Genesis, if you remember, discussing the purpose of prayer, looking at how it is that we pray and why we pray, why we would pray to a God who does not change his mind in the face of our prayers. And in week three and week four, we had a two-part series on wealth and health issues as it relates to the sovereignty of God. And if you missed any of those, I think I've mentioned before, those are available here in your bookstore. They're also available on my website. In fact, I just want to take a moment to thank many of you who have taken time to write to me. I've received some very encouraging emails, many from those of you in this room. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I've also received a good number of emails from people across the country who have found this series on my website and are following it along. So take heart to know that you are one of hundreds of people who aren't in this room who are benefiting from God's Word. So I thank Castle Hills and Cy for giving me the opportunity for God's Word to be heard across the country in this way. Now, I do want to make one slight correction to the schedule. Last, next week is supposedly, according to your schedule, a teaching on, uh, I believe it's on God's Word, and then the last teaching was on world events as they relate to God's sovereignty. I'm just going to swap those two. So I'll update the secretary so we can get the 
program printed correctly if we're going to do any more of those. But just so you know, next week we'll be talking about God's sovereignty in world events. And then the last teaching will be on God's sovereignty in his word. Enough of that. Tonight we're going to be looking at God's sovereignty in evangelism. And I'm calling it, The Fields Are White. As Christians, I think we often speak about Jesus' final instructions as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. You've probably heard these last three verses. Yeah, I'm sorry, in Matthew, not Mark. In Matthew, you've probably heard those last three verses commonly called the Great Commission. You probably know what I'm talking about, right? The last three verses that end that book, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, essentially ask Christians to go out. But when you ask a Christian what it is specifically that, that, that those three verses are asking them to do, what is it that the Great Commission actually tells us to do, uh, you get different answers. In fact, you get a wide variety of answers from Christians And I'm not saying, what does it say? I'm asking, what does it mean? What does it look like? And no, it's not the thing a salesman earns from making a great sale. We're talking about commission as in service, of course. Some have said, as I've asked this question in the past, they've said things like, it means to preach the gospel to all the nations. Good answer. I like that. Some have said... It's Jesus' command to Christians to share their faith with their friends and with their neighbors. Good answer as well. Some could say the Great Commission implores us to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true. That's true as well. But for the record, let's look at those verses for a moment. What is it in Matthew 28 that Christ actually commands us to do? And this is not our passage for the night. As you know, I use passages of scripture to teach on the major point for the night and this is simply preparatory material but it's important because if we're going to talk about evangelism much less God's sovereignty in evangelism shouldn't we get what evangelism means straight out of the Bible verse 28 I'm sorry verse 18 of chapter 28 of Matthew and reading onward says this Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, simple enough, familiar enough, I'm sure. But let's look at those words carefully for just a moment. Beginning with, all authority has been given to Christ on heaven and on earth. Now, we know who gave Christ the authority. The Father did. The Father will put all things under subjection, under Christ's feet, in subjection to Christ's feet. That, that phrase out of the Psalms refers to the fact that eventually all men, women, and even the devil himself, even death itself, will be subjected to Christ's authority. And because of that fact, Jesus says, go. Verse 19, he says, go therefore. Go because of the fact that I have all authority. It is because... Christ has all authority, that we even have reason to go, much less opportunity for success. We can be assured that because he has all authority, we will not go out in vain, in other words. We can be sure that our obedience to his command will be followed by some measure of success as he gives us opportunity, because he has all authority. And that 
opportunity for success could include success that doesn't bear fruit until many years after we've come and gone. We're not guaranteed of seeing success in the moment that we're there. But success will come according to his will. Paul instructs the Corinthian church on this very principle when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The focus out of what Paul has just taught, the focus for the credit, who gets the credit, in other words, for building the church, is always God himself. Always God himself. It's not the one who plants the seed. It's not the evangelist who sows the word of God, in other words. He doesn't get the credit. Nor is the credit going to go to the one who comes along afterward and waters that seed that's been planted. In other words, the one who comes along with love and encouragement and nurtures the growth and the, the, the life of this new believer. No, that person doesn't get any credit either. Both of these people, Paul says, are just workers in God's field. They're hired help. They're servants. God made that growth possible. God made the growth of new faith possible. God produced the life in that new believer. God, therefore receives all the credit in the building of his church. And I think we, generally speaking, agree with this. Generally speaking, I don't run into a lot of Christians who personally take a lot of individual credit for bringing new believers into this world, and I'm glad that that's the case. But I don't think we appreciate that the Great Commission, as Jesus gave it in the end of Matthew, echoes that same sentiment. In verse 19 of that Great Commission... He tells us, make disciples of the nations. Disciples, matheteo in the Greek, means a pupil, it means a student, it means someone who grows through instruction. Disciple. And then in the verse that follows, Jesus tells us how to make a disciple. How do you make a disciple? Well, he says, first, we baptize new believers. That's the first step. Baptism, we all know, serves several purposes, one of which is not to save people, but it does serve useful purposes. And in this context, in the context of Matthew 28, in the context of the Great Commission, the primary purpose, I believe, of baptism is as an early essential test of sincerity for that new believer. You know, when someone claims acceptance of the gospel, they declare their sinfulness, they repent of it, and they believe Jesus is their Messiah and the one way by which they can be reconciled to the Father. If they're willing to make that statement, but they can't bring themselves to participate in even the simplest public display of commitment, standing up in front of like-minded people and being immersed in water, a baptism, then it should draw into question the sincerity of their confession. It draws into question whether they really meant what they said. Why? Because it would take the heart of a believer to do that by and large. 
Now, secondly, we're told to teach all who then make that step of commitment to obey Jesus and to obey what he commanded his disciples to do. Now, that's where we get our notion of discipleship, right? We say discipleship means bringing new believers up in the fundamental teachings of the faith. So we should disciple after they have been baptized. So let's review this. In the Great Commission, Jesus told us, make disciples of the nations. And then he said, making disciples is baptizing new believers and then teaching them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How many people do you know who are doing that? Now, he didn't say the church should do that. He didn't say the staff should do that. He didn't say pastors do that. How often have you done that? How many people have you baptized? Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, only a pastor can baptize. I haven't found that yet. Where is that? The reason I'm making a point about baptism is that if you're not in the position where anyone ever could look to you for baptism, then it draws, for me, it would draw some question about how close are you ever getting to where the rubber meets the road in the Christian faith? How much work are you really endeavoring to do to collect those who God may put in your path who are receptive to the word of God and willing to make a confession and may look to you for that discipleship? But now, as I look at the Great Commission, and you look there with me, did you think maybe something was missing? Did you kind of sense maybe there's a piece that you were expecting to find, but it's not there? You know, something where we say where new believers actually come from? Isn't that part of the Great Commission, going out and making believers? Well, okay. Yes, but not exactly. I mean, it's true that God purposes to work through men to bring good news to others. In fact, the word evangelist in the Greek, it literally means one who brings good tidings, one who brings good news. So, yes, obviously, God is going to work through his appointed evangelist to bring faith. That's clear. But they're workers. They're workers in the field, just like Paul, just like Apollos. God is bringing new life, yes, new life to a lost and a dying world, but He's bringing it through men that he purposes to work through, but it's still him bringing it. It's still him bringing that new life. I think it's notable that the words Christ gives to his apostles at the end of Matthew 28 makes no specific reference to us having any responsibility for producing new believers. And he could have said that, but he didn't. Rather, Jesus places our emphasis squarely on receiving that new spiritual life and then confirming it through baptism and then maturing it through discipling. Uh, I think you could compare the role we play under the Great Commission to the role a doctor would play when he assists with the birth of a new child. You know, that doctor wasn't responsible for forming that child in the mother's womb. The doctor is not responsible for making the cells divide, for forming the structures of the body, for starting the heart beating. He doesn't do any of those things. No, God does those things. The doctor simply stood at the end of that assembly line and he waited to receive the new life as it was born. Then he washes it. Then he hands that life over to caretakers who are committed to instructing it and bringing it up in the ways of the Lord, ideally. That's the essence of the Great Commission. That's the essence of what Christ is asking us to do. He's asking all of us to do that, personally. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 16. When he spoke to Peter and he said to him in 1615, he said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood, in other words, an evangelist, for example, couldn't teach Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. He could speak the words. He could bring the message. But it requires the Holy Spirit to reveal that truth into the heart of that believer. Evangelism without the Holy Spirit present is just words. I think we'd all do well to remember that the birth of a new life, whether we're talking about the birth of physical life or whether we're talking about the new birth of spiritual life, both of those things are the work of God through the Holy Spirit. All right, so what exactly does an evangelist bring to the process then? Because if I'm playing with your mind a little bit now, you may have a question about exactly what is it I do when I evangelize then? What is it I do if we send missionaries out to the other corners of the world to bring the good news? What is it they're supposed to do according to Scripture? Well, Paul answered that question in one verse. Romans 10:17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. At the hearing of God's word, the Holy Spirit opens the heart to faith. And the evangelist has done his work. The word we know pierces the heart, according to Hebrews 4.12. We know it's the sword of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 6.17. It is the instrument by which the Holy Spirit will bring faith. And that is why we need men and women to bring the word. Now, we know God's saving word may reach an unbeliever from the pages of a Bible, for example, or a Bible tract or some other piece of literature. But it can also come from the mouth of an evangelist, right? It can also be spoken word. But in either case, the word of Christ is simply the tool being used by the Holy Spirit. When a person you know has come to faith and they've come to faith after reading the Bible, for example, or being in a Bible study or in some other way seeing the word of God written, you never think to look at that person and say that anything other than God and anything other than his word was responsible for that new faith. You don't credit the teacher of the Bible study, I hope. But then when somebody gets to be a believer because of the word spoken by an evangelist, somehow we turn that on occasion. We can be tempted to give credit to the evangelist, can't we? Not intentionally, not not intentionally trying to rob God of his glory, but it's easy to do when you don't intend to, isn't it? But in both those cases, the word of God is what was responsible for the Holy Spirit changing that heart. 1 Corinthians 12:3 says this, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit. Remember that example I used a few weeks ago about the father with the son working in his garage on the car? At the risk of wearing that example out, it fits so perfectly here again. Remember, the father does all the real work, but he invites the son to join him so that the son may benefit from working alongside the father. And we said when we went over that example how the son being involved actually makes the work more difficult, slows the father down, makes the error, increases error, right? Makes it harder to do the job. But the father's willing to put up with all that because his point is not really so much fixing the car. His main point is getting the son to grow alongside him. And the father loves the son so much, he wouldn't dare do the work without him. Even if he could do it better without him. It's the same thing in spreading the good news. 
We've been uh, invited to participate with the Father. But if we're not careful, we can begin to claim some measure of credit for any success we might achieve. That wouldn't be appropriate. We'd be forgetting that God did all the heavy lifting. If you can't tell by now, I'm concerned a little for the church overall, the church universal, because I think it's lost some sight of the fact that the sovereignty of God in evangelism means God is the one saving people, not us. Many churches, I'm afraid, have produced entire generations of Christians that believe that everything depends on them personally. I have personally found Christians who confess to me that they live with guilt because they've been taught that if they didn't share the gospel message with someone, they somehow participated in sealing that person's fate in eternity. That somehow they share responsibility for that person's condemnation should they not become a believer. If there's anyone in here that feels that way tonight, please allow me to ease your burden. Just as no one deserves credit for anyone's salvation, no one can be guilty of another man's sin and his just condemnation. Period. Simply put, God's not dependent on any one person's obedience in order to bring the good news to another person. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He can do it without us. Remember Saul? Remember Saul on the road to Damascus where he's on his way to persecute Christians? And what happens? Christ himself appears to Saul, calls on him, and reveals himself to him. Bringing Saul into faith, turning Saul into Paul. God was able to bring him the knowledge of Christ without another man involved. He can do it. He doesn't need us, but he wants to work with us for our benefit. What's interesting to me is God still did find a man, Ananias, who would be obedient and work alongside him to disciple Saul into Paul. So don't ever feel guilty over another person's lack of faith. That's not your responsibility. But, and you knew there would be a but, right? But, if you're prone to ignoring the Great Commission, don't take too much comfort by what I just said. Because there are personal consequences for each one of us when we neglect our responsibility to obey that commission. Remember that 1 Corinthians passage I read at the beginning of this teaching? The one where Paul made mention of the rewards for workers in God's field? Listen to verse 8 again. He says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You know, Paul, Apollos, one waters, one's planting. Together they're one, effectively. They're working as a team. They're really all just doing God's work together according to God's purpose. But he says, despite that fact, despite that they're working as one, individually, they still will have to take account for what they did. And they're each going to receive reward according to their own labor. If you're a lazy worker, so to speak, if you don't do your part in God's field, it doesn't matter. Not to the field. God will hire other workers. He'll get it done with someone else. He's not going to let his crops suffer due to the mistakes of a poor worker. But those obedient workers, they're going to receive the wages that you could have had. That's the difference. You know, as workers in God's field, 
There's another kind of mistake we can make, too. I mean, on the one hand, I've just outlined how if we're lazy, if we're not engaged, if we're not taking the Great Commission personally, we have something at risk. We have a chance to make a mistake. But there's another kind of mistake you can make that's from a very different kind of error, from a different kind of mistake in perspective. It's one that can have even greater, dire, uh, even more dire consequences, I should say, for the church itself. And that leads us to tonight's passage in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8 for just a moment. If we're talking about evangelism, it only makes sense to be in Acts. It may surprise you to hear, but Acts chapter 8 follows Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we see the famous scene of Stephen being stoned. If you know the book of Acts, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And at the beginning of chapter 8, we're told Saul was in agreement with the stoning of Stephen, one of the first evangelists in the early church. Now, you probably remember how Stephen came to be an evangelist, right? He was one of the seven who signed up to wait on tables. (laughs) It sort of works that way, doesn't it? One minute... You know, you you volunteer to count the offering. Next thing you know, you're leading the building committee. You're running two Sunday school classes, right? And you're directing traffic in the parking lot. That's how it works. Next thing you know, you're planning a church. I've been there, trust me. And Stephen is one of the seven men selected to resolve a dispute over feeding widows, going back a few chapters. But Stephen is connected with another man who now gets his Day in the Sun in chapter 8, a man named Philip. Philip was also one of those seven selected to wait tables. And here he is in chapter 8, beginning his ministry as an evangelist. Now, Stephen is stoned for the death of his testimony, as I've said. And when that happened, wide-scale persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And as a result of that persecution, we see a scattering of many of the early members of that church in an attempt to escape the persecution. It makes perfect sense. And they go to areas outside of Jerusalem. And as verse 4 explains in chapter 8, the scattering resulted in the preaching of the word. This is a good example of how God can turn bad circumstances to good. Persecution on the church turned into great growth for the church. And as an aside, I find it interesting that throughout the history of the church, its greatest times of growth and strength always accompany tremendous persecution. I think the enemy figured that out. And he changed his tactics. And he isn't so much about persecuting the church now, although it still happens on occasion, time to time. He's much more interested in giving you comfort. Because, frankly, the more comfortable we are, the less we do. But that aside, one of the new leaders, as I said, is Philip. And he travels initially in his ministry to a city named Samaria. Now, that's a rarity. Jews normally had no reason to want to be in Samaria. Samaritans and Jews had often despised one another, had long long time been enemies. And here we are now with Philip in Samaria as we begin the passage in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, were shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. 
Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. In the city of Samaria, Philip begins his ministry in earnest. And before Christ departed, the disciples, he is quoted in the book of Mark. At the end of Mark's gospel, is telling the apostles that they're going to have some unique and powerful spiritual gifts. They're going to have, among other things, the ability to do things like cast out demons and lay on hands and heal people and, and, and other such things. And here we see Philip actually doing the very things that Christ said that the apostles would have the power to do. All as a a part of helping spread the gospel message in the early church. What makes Philip's story so interesting, though, is this man named Simon, Simon the Magician. He, we're told, had been practicing his magic in Samaria for some time. That phrase at the beginning that says he was doing it formerly, not, my translation makes that a bit awkward. It's really a, a slightly different word in the Greek. It really means something more like he had been doing it from time before, that he's been doing it for a long time, in other words been ongoing for a while. That's really the intent of the phrase. And I, I would tell you the story makes clear. Saul, uh, Simon rather has real power. This isn't magic tricks like your son or uh, your daughter might do with cards. This is real demonic power. Magic arts, it's called. Black magic, in other words. And it's got to be real because it's having tremendous effect on the people of Samaria. When you look at the description, it says, He gained great advantage out of his power that people looked at it and said that he is the great power of God. That phrase sounds suspiciously like a substitution for the Holy Spirit, a kind of counterfeit version of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. It's demonic power. And I would also tell you that he's using it for great gain. He's using it for personal gain, probably not just for his ego, probably for financial gain. I bet he's doing it for money. I assume maybe he's casting out demons for money or whatever might come to his mind. In any event, he is the man on the scene. This is his turf. Then one day, Philip walks into town. And with him comes the true power of God, the Holy Spirit. And he begins to perform the miracles that Jesus said he would, uh, that Jesus said he could do in Jesus' name. And naturally, of course, he amazes the city because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to remember, this is a city that had already become accustomed to seeing magic done. It had already been accustomed to fairly remarkable things. And yet, whatever Philip did far surpassed what they had seen before. It gained even greater recognition. And because of what he was doing and what he was saying, preaching the gospel, many believe and are baptized. Now, I ask you, how do you think Simon reacted to this display? I mean, well, the scripture says he was amazed, and that he believed, and he was baptized. I know that, but it also says he continued on with Philip. The word there for continued on, the Greek word, proskotereo, literally means to never leave one side, like he's attached at Philip's hip, wherever Philip goes. He's intently interested in observing the continued miracles that Philip is doing. He's particularly interested in those miracles, in those amazing powers. 
Now, I guess if we stop right here, if the book of Acts chapter 8 ended right here, well, we just have an interesting and encouraging story about evangelism. You know, an evangelist in his natural habitat kind of a story. But the story doesn't end. So let's go on. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, as I said earlier, the persecution that had come upon the church in the early days had scattered many within the city of Jerusalem, men like Philip. But the apostles, notably, had steadfastly refused to leave. The apostles, for the most part, stayed in Jerusalem initially. And as word began to reach them of how Gentiles, even Sumerians, were beginning to believe in the gospel message and respond to it, I imagine they just couldn't stand it any longer, and they had to go out and see for themselves to understand what was going on. What was God doing? And that prompts them to come down to Samaria and look upon Philip's work. And as the scripture says, something puzzling was happening here. The believers in Samaria had not yet received the Holy Spirit at the time they confessed and were baptized. Now, this is not the normal experience for the church today, obviously. In the church today, according to scripture, as we believe, we are indwelt. In fact, according to the scripture we already read, the Holy Spirit is already present, working in the heart of an unbeliever, so that they can understand the gospel message. So how is it that in the early church, this event of salvation and the event of the giving of the Holy Spirit are somehow disconnected? And this isn't the only example. If you know the book of Acts, you know that this is not a unique example in the early church. It happened on many occasions. But if you think about it, the difference in behavior for the early church makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. The gift of the Holy Spirit to every believer, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is a unique characteristic of being in the church, of the church age, of the time since Pentecost. Prior to that, there had been no such experience common to believers. Yes, the Holy Spirit might come upon a man for a time. He might even work with a man throughout his life. But that's not the same thing as every believer receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was new. So when the indwelling of the Holy Spirit first came to be at Pentecost, God intended to make the moment of indwelling a demonstrable experience, a visible experience, a tangible experience, something that's undeniable. Why? So that the early church would have clear evidence that the Father was keeping Jesus' promise to send his Spirit to all believers so that he may teach them all things. Because without that demonstrable experience in the early church, you and I would probably still be sitting around today debating on whether or not the Holy Spirit actually indwells people. 
You see my point? I know it does because I see the fruit in my life. I know it does in other believers because I see the fruit in their life. But how long does that take? In some cases, a long time, right? In the early church, God didn't have a long time to build the first of his church. And he used the demonstrable outward expressions of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help confirm in the minds of those who were in the church that, in fact, the Holy Spirit was a part of the salvation experience. And he chose to do it in very unique ways, in ways that were unique to the early church. Why doesn't he do it that way today? Well, simply because he wants our belief in him and our allegiance to him to be based on faith, on things that are not seen, as Hebrews tells us rather than on things that are. So here come the apostles into Samaria, and they begin to lay hands on the ones who have confessed faith, and immediately they receive the Holy Spirit in a very demonstrable way. It's clear from the way Simon reacts that it must have been very visible. It must have been something that anyone could see was happening. And no doubt the people who were receiving this Holy Spirit were exceedingly thankful. They were thanking God, glorifying Him, and probably thanking the apostles as well, and probably giving them some glory inadvertently. And then there's Simon. Simon, Simon, Simon. Simon just can't stand it any longer. I mean, first there was Philip. Philip rides into town. He steals the show, takes the crowd away. One day, business is hopping for Simon. Next day, a competitor with a better act shows up, ruins everything. Takes away his friends, takes away his livelihood, takes away his importance in this town. Now, Simon has to take his hat off to Philip. I mean, after all, there's only one thing a con artist really respects, and that's a better con artist. Or at least that's what he thinks Philip is. Philip is cut from the same cloth. It's a man after his own heart, except he's just a lot better at it. Well, if you can't beat him, join him. He declares himself to be a disciple of Philip. He follows Philip around constantly, trying to learn the secret of his impressive powers. Finally, after Simon watches the apostles bestowing the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, it's just too much for him, and he he breaks down and offers money. I can't figure out how you do this, but I'm willing to pay to find out. Now, maybe you're feeling a bit uncomfortable about my characterization of Simon as someone who merely faked his confession of faith. I mean, after all, the Scripture says plainly he believed, and he was baptized. I mean, after all, that should settle the issue, right? He believed. End of story. Well, first, are you saying that there's no such thing as a false confession? I hope not. I mean, I hope we realize that does happen. People do step up and say words they don't mean. People do even go into water and get baptized, though they don't know why they're doing it. But that doesn't prove that he did that, does it? I can't. Prove just on the fact that it can happen that it did happen, right? Well, the fact that he said he believed and the fact that he was baptized doesn't preclude the possibility that he was lying either. Now, as I said, if chapter 8 had ended right about this point, let's say around verse 13, well, then we really wouldn't have much of an argument here. I'd probably have to tell you you're right and say, I'm really reading a lot into the text. He probably did believe. Thankfully, it doesn't end. Thankfully, I don't have to guess about Simon. Thankfully, I don't even have to rely on intuition. I don't have to rely on guesswork. I actually have eyewitnesses. 
I have eyewitnesses who came down and looked at the man and talked to the man and discerned his heart. And I have their report. Consider what Peter says to Simon. First, he says, may your silver perish with you. If you were to translate that most literally in the Greek, do you know what he actually said in the, in the vernacular of the language of that day? He said, go to hell with your money. Literally. And let me tell you, when the apostle Peter tells you to go to hell, it's a lot more serious. Pearly gates and all. And then he says, you have no part or portion in this matter. The word part in the Greek, meris, it means no share. No part, no share in. And then the word portion, kleros, it means inheritance. No share in something. No inheritance in something. And then the word matter. You have no part, no portion in this matter. The word matter in the Greek being used in this particular verse? Logos. And if you know your Greek, you know that logos is the same word used in John 1, 1. In the word, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. The Logos is the Word. You have no part. You have no inheritance in the Word. Then he says, Simon's heart is not right before God. The word right in the Greek literally means set straight. Your heart's not been set straight before God. Then he tells him to repent before God and pray for forgiveness. And then he adds that very interesting little piece at the end. He says, and if possible, God will forgive you. Folks, for a believer, there's never any doubt about God's forgiveness. If Simon had been a believer, he would have already been forgiven for that sin, along with every other sin he could possibly commit, as he was at the moment of justification if he had been a believer. But here the apostles say there is some doubt as to whether God will forgive his sin. And then finally, the nail in Simon's coffin, so to speak. Peter says, that he sees Simon is in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. It's interesting that Peter starts that statement with the word horeo, which is translated sees in my version. But it doesn't mean sees with the eye. It means sees as in perceives, as in discerns, as in understanding something about someone that you really can't see with your eyes. You can only sense otherwise. He perceives that he's in the gall of bitterness. Gall of bitterness is a colloquial phrase. It's common in Scripture. It's common in the Old Testament. It's common in the New Testament. Gall of bitterness simply means envy so powerful that it borders on hatred. Envy of a person so powerful that it borders on hatred. Simon envies these powerful men and their powerful signs and wonders. And then he says, you're in the bondage of iniquity. You're a slave to sin rather than a slave to Christ. He's an unbeliever. Peter has discerned. And then in response to Peter's statement, what does Simon say? He says, why don't you pray for me instead? I call that the unbeliever's brush off. Ever had that happen? Unbelievers, for some reason, must sense that they're not in communion with God. They're, they're distant from God. They're, they don't have a relationship with Him. And so in their times of greatest need, of spiritual need, what do they often do? They find someone they know is religious, assume they've got some connection, and they ask that person to pray for them, right? You almost want to ask, well, have you prayed already too? You know, what about you? But 
Unbelievers don't know what that's like. They don't understand that. They don't have a connection in that way. And neither did Simon. All right, well, what's the scripture teaching us here? What's my point, right? Well, this is an example of that second problem I said we can make, that second mistake we can make. When we lose sight of the real meaning of the Great Commission and we shift our focus to thinking that we're making believers rather than discipling new believers, we risk filling our churches with Simons. Now, I'm not saying Philip did anything wrong at all. I'm not saying Philip wasn't completely obedient. That's not my point. My point is not what Simon was doing, because if you really look closely, Simon and the apostles did exactly what they were supposed to do. Came, preached the word, obeyed the Holy Spirit's direction, and then discerned what the result was. Discipled those who came along and claimed faith. And in that discipling process, they were able to find the Simons. So it's not a problem with what Philip did. No, the problem is what we so often do in the church, as I've witnessed it. It's apparent to me that many churches have become content to fill their seats with people like Simon rather than doing the harder work of filling the hearts with the Word of God. Have you noticed how few churches make true discipleship the emphasis of their evangelism effort? In fact, most most churches do this, right? Evangelism ministries, discipleship ministries. The definition of this includes this. Evangelism is all about baptizing and discipling so that we can discern who the Simons are. Grow up the believer into the grace and knowledge of Christ and find the unbeliever. Why? So we can kick him out? <laughs> so we can start over. Well, simple confirmation of a faith, the baptism in other words, That's so often missing in churches today. I find it very interesting that churches, particularly really big ones, I'm not saying size is the problem per se, but in churches that have large audiences that have altar calls, many people responding in faith, very few, less than half on average, actually get baptized. Because who's following up? Who knows who these people are? And how many of those who do confess faith and perhaps are even baptized, how many of those have ever taken aside and personally discipled to grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ? Remember what Christ said? He said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. That requires two things. I've got to teach them the word, because that's where the commandments he gave are. And then I have to teach them to obey. Knowing it's one thing, doing it's another. I would argue that many churches don't even start with the knowing, much less any effort to get them to obey. Listen to what George Barna said. You know who George Barna is? He runs an organization that surveys, in many cases, churches, trying to understand trends in the church. This is what he said about some of his recent survey results. He said, our studies consistently show that churches, he's talking about churches today, base their sense of success on indicators such as attendance, Congregate satisfaction, dollars raised, and built-out square footage. But none of those factors relate to the kind of radical shift in thinking and behavior that Jesus Christ died on the cross to facilitate. As long as we measure success on the basis of popularity and efficiency, we will continue to see a nation filled with people 
who can recite Bible stories but fail to live according to Bible principles. No discipleship. And I submit to you that one of the reasons this situation exists in the first place is because the church has largely ignored the biblical teaching of God's sovereignty in evangelism. We've replaced reliance on the Holy Spirit and his role in producing new faith with a reliance on new methodologies, on slick marketing tactics in order to bring the crowds in. We've jettisoned our solemn responsibility under the Great Commission to confirm new faith and then disciple it, and we've replaced it with superficial weekly experiences that merely fill a square on a weekly calendar. They're little more than entertainment. Again, I I doubt that's the case here, but I'll tell you, I've been in churches where that's exactly what's going on. And when we fill our churches with Simons, we're in real trouble. We're in real trouble. Because while they come in and share our name, And while they may share our building on a a one-day-a-week basis, they don't share our values. They don't share our hope in Christ. They don't share our love for one another, and they don't share our faith. And yes, we want unbelievers to come into this building. We just don't want them to remain unbelievers. I'd like to end tonight on a positive note. And so would you, I'm sure. And thankfully, the rest of chapter 8 gives me that opportunity. Because chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. Because it not only presents us with the problem, it also presents us with the solution. Because after Philip leaves Samaria, he has a remarkably different experience as an evangelist. Philip hears from the Holy Spirit, and here's what happens in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me. Of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water. Smart guy. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. You know, if if, uh, Philip couldn't have turned that man into a believer, he he had no business being an evangelist. Let me put it that way. How would you like to have everything lined up for you that way? It's so important that this account appears 
side by side within the same chapter as the first because God intends it to stand in stark contrast to the events in Samaria. Where one experience turned on miraculous signs and wonders, the other relied on the Word of God. Where one experience had to wait for the Holy Spirit to appear to confirm faith, the second experience had the Holy Spirit involved even before it began. The the Spirit calls Philip to go out into the field. And Philip responds, and the worker enters the field, for the fields are white for the harvest. And the Spirit begins to till the ground to prepare the heart of a man to receive the seed, the Word of God. And the Spirit directs Philip directly to that man where the sowing needs to begin. And the man endeavors to understand the Word of God by himself, and of course he falls short. He needs someone to explain his meaning. It is foolishness to those who do not have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit prompts Philip to run up and to join this man so that he may explain the truth and that faith may begin to grow. And the new faith prompts an obedience in this man. He seeks baptism and Philip does his job. Philip tests his sincerity and then he allows it and baptizes the man. And once the worker has completed his assigned task, then the master moves him on to new ground leaving others to come behind and to nurture that new believer who goes off rejoicing. What a beautiful scene. And what a simple picture of how God does the work, and yet we are invited to join Him. Now, if you're looking at this and you say, okay, yes, but it's never that easy. It's never been that easy for me. I don't know about Philip. It's kind of like an idealized example, right? No. No. And I can tell you from personal experience, no. That's the only way it works. The only way. And if you've had experiences that felt like pulling teeth, did you end up with a eunuch or did you end up with Simon? I mean, only God knows. And you were doing the right thing for the right reason, perhaps. But what I want you to understand is when God said, don't throw, Jesus said, don't throw pearl before swine. He's saying there's a time and then there's perhaps not a time. Not to give up permanently, but understand that if you don't see the Holy Spirit tilling the ground, you're in the wrong place in the field. And while you're busy hammering away on someone who's not receptive, the guy down the street reading Isaiah is waiting for you to get up in his chariot. You remember when Christ says in Mark, in response to the rich man who won't sell all his possessions and join him, that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the apostles hear that and they say, well, then who can be saved? And he says, well, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He's talking about salvation. So if you're ready to obey the Great Commission, and I hope you are, then why don't you model your ministry after the second half of chapter 8? Listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Watch for signs that a heart is being prepared by the Holy Spirit, that someone has ears to hear. Bring the gospel by way of the Word of God and let the Word of God do its work. 
emphasize the importance of baptism for a new believer as a confirmation of their faith, as a first step of obedience. And then entrust that new believer into the care of those who will love and disciple him or her in the meat of the Word of God and will love them as the faithful are to love one another. And you're doing the work of an evangelist. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us the opportunity to do that work. But, Father, sometimes we fall short. And we confess, Father, that sometimes we are too busy doing that work in our own power while the man or woman down the way, readied by your Holy Spirit, sits by himself waiting for someone to explain the passage. Father, we desire to be the one through whom you would work to bring new faith. And we desire, Father, to be obedient to that calling. And most of all, Father, we desire a heart to trust your sovereignty in this work. Let us be patient, Father. Let us be loving. Let us not take offense, Father, when others are offended by your gospel message. And let us persevere. But, Father, let us do our work in the right place at the right time by listening to your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, that the Word of God gives us that, gives us that understanding, gives us that hope, that reason to even look, Father. For just as on Easter, a child may run into the backyard eagerly looking for an Easter egg, knowing that the Father has put them there. They are there to be found. And for that reason, the excitement is so high. I pray, Father, that we would also look at the world that way, That we would leave this room knowing that in the world outside, you have planted those who await us. And in the right moment, Father, you will bring them faith so that they may know you through us. Thank you, Father, for that opportunity. And let us be honoring and obedient to take part in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.